says, I'm going to fly this aircraft like I could fly a mechanical aircraft. Sometimes I have to get into the limits. I'm going to let you do that with fly-by-wire. I'm not going to limit what you can do. The pilot always has control of the aircraft. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. You're listening to episode 43 of the Rotary Wing Show. Today, you'll get probably the best introduction to the Bell 525 Relentless that you'll find anywhere on the web at the moment. Our guest today is Larry Timmich, Vice President, Bell 525 Relentless Sales. Larry has been involved with the 525 for the last five years, right from the, the program's very earliest days. The 525 is Bell Helicopter's largest helicopter to date and weighs in at 20,000 pounds or 9,000 kilos. It has been created off a completely clean sheet design and it'll be the world's first commercial fly-by-wire helicopter. In this interview, you'll get to hear about the background to the design process and a rundown of the technology and advances built into a whole range of the aircraft systems. If you are joining us from Heli Expo 2016 and this is your first introduction to the show, welcome. It's awesome to have you with us. If you enjoy this episode, just know there are another 42 helicopter episodes that you can go back through and listen to in iTunes or on the website at rotarywingshow.com. Last episode, I forgot to tell you what the helicopter was that was used in the Segway audio for that episode. It was a a Russian Mil Mi-26, which for pure trivia's sake has a a max takeoff weight of six times that of the Bell 525. Here is Larry Timmich from Bell Helicopter to talk about the Bell 525 Relentless. Larry Timmich, welcome to the Rotary Wing Show. Thanks very much for being able to have a time to chat to us. Thank you, Mick. Glad to be here. Well, Larry, let's start off with, um, I guess, the role you hold down at uh, Bell Helicopters and a little bit of your background, and then let's jump into talking about the, the Bell 525 Relentless. So can you just give us a bit of an idea of yeah, your current uh, position title, I guess, and what your responsibilities are? Okay. So uh, I've uh, been at Bell Helicopter for five years. I came on uh, as the... Uh, Vice President over commercial programs, uh, really looking at rebalancing the commercial business with the military business. With uh, Department of Defense spending we see coming down, we knew we needed to really bolster the commercial side of our portfolio. So the idea when I came on was to really work across the product line. And it was very soon that we we really centered on a uh, clean sheet, medium heavy class helicopter that we really needed to bring to the market. We had a lot of new technology capabilities from the military side. So very quickly after I got on board, I transitioned from over commercial programs, specifically over the 525. And I, I've been on the 525 program specifically for last four or four and a half years. Within the last couple of weeks, I've actually transitioned into the sales role, uh, vice president for sales, because we're really, you know, we're focused on certification. We're getting through testing and really we're what I call that final sprint to certification we really need to get the message out to the market of the capabilities of the aircraft. It is something much different than we provided in the past on the commercial side. So 
There's a lot of value. There's a lot of safety. There's a lot of brand new technology. And when you design a clean sheet aircraft, you want to make sure that you're bringing the right technology that's out there to make a difference in the market. So it is a very important story. It's a complex story. So I'm spending time now uh, talking with customers. I've spent a lot of time in the past talking with customers, but really dedicated to get everybody to understand the value equation and the safety side of the program. So my history comes from, uh, I've been in aviation all my life. I was in uh, systems and structural design at Boeing for many years. I was at uh, Bombardier for many years in customer support and also in program management. So I've seen different aspects of it. I am very, very passionate about the customer. It all starts and it ends with the customer. And that's one of the good stories that I'll talk about on the program. Yeah, looking really forward to diving into some of those things because, you know, seeing it from early mock-ups to then come through and now the um, you know, flight test vehicles up and, and pitches like that. So it's, you know, you can really see progress uh, happening there. Uh, just on, you know, flicking back again, just your history. So you did a bit of time on, um, you know, working on, on Learjet programs and things like that. You would have seen some pretty specked out or pretty uh, fancy and luxury interiors of aircraft, I'm guessing. This aircraft is designed for all mission segments, so uh, certainly corporate VIP is one of those. Um, just a little history on our customer advisory panel, something that uh, that we've made sure on this program is we brought in people at the very beginning. We did not give them any preconceived notions about what this aircraft was going to be. Uh, we just said somewhere between the, the future heavy and medium space, we want to design the right aircraft and, you know, all mission segments start with the same basic design. So the starting point for an OGP, a search and rescue, uh, emergency medical, firefighting, corporate VIP, all have a standard basic aircraft. So making sure from the very beginning, it was probably our second meeting in 2011 that we actually defined about 85 kits that we needed to design to make the aircraft successful. And, you know, one of the big, uh, kind of the aha moments for me coming from the fixed wing side to the helicopter with side, how vastly different every helicopter can be depending on how it's used. So something that we surprised us a little bit was how much interest there's been in the corporate VIP. And, and that's a very good thing. People like it because it has a, a Belican helicopter is the only company who isolates all the turning moments, all the, all the uh, causes of vibration at its source on the roof deck. And it makes for an incredibly smooth and quiet interior. And it's honestly, for the class of aircraft, it is a very good-looking aircraft. So a lot of people from a corporate VIP perspective are really drawn to the aesthetics. And then when they look at the safety side, it'll be the first commercially certified fly-by-wire system that has levels of redundancy and integrated vehicle health monitoring that are you can only get with a clean sheet technology aircraft. It really does uh, make it for a great corporate VIP aircraft. And, you know, it's a very big cabin, big baggage volume, same as a... S92 or 225. So there's a lot we can do with that interior. So we've had some of our interior designers just have a lot of fun uh, putting out, you know, just realms of possibility of what can happen with the aircraft. That's right. Because often the rotary world, you know, you, you look at these beautiful uh, fixed wing corporate jets and things like that. And, uh, you know, we're very utilitarian and uh, it's all about getting the job done sometimes in helicopters. But uh, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see those come through. Uh, but before we jump into the machine, I guess, like, you know, your role there, it would cover so many of those different sections. Is there, do you have an average schedule? Like, you know, what would be an average day in your life at the moment? I know you're spending a lot of time in the sales and talking to customers, but uh, do you do a lot of travel? Uh, is it mostly, you know, remote type work? What would be an average day in the life of Larry at the moment? So right now I've been, I've been in the sales roles for two weeks, so I'm probably not in what I would call a standard schedule yet, but spending a lot of time working with the sales team to really understand the value equation. We are not designing a low-cost aircraft. We are designing 
a, the safest aircraft that we can provide and the lowest cost of ownership, because that's really what it's about. If I buy an aircraft, we're always going to talk about price, but what's it going to cost me to own and operate that aircraft for 10 years? What are you doing to reduce unscheduled maintenance so I have higher aircraft availability, I have lower maintenance cost? What are you doing with you know the overall operational requirements of this aircraft, minimizing the amount of spare parts and ground support equipment I need? So really getting that message out both internally to the sales team and with customers. So really understanding and getting the word out on the value equation, helping the marketing team, you know, understand that and get that message out so people can really understand it. It's a it's a good story, it's a true story, and it's how we design the aircraft. And I think the more people understand how we design the aircraft, because we have done it much different than we have in the past. So right now, my first couple of weeks, I'm spending a lot of time really internalizing with the team, uh, getting to know the team better. Certainly working with some customers, have a lot of uh, trips lining up. Uh, Heli, Heli Expo uh, in Louisville, Kentucky uh, is next week. So we'll be meeting with a lot of customers there. We'll have our flight test vehicle to there, which at this moment is actually flying to Louisville, Kentucky. So it's going to be very exciting for a lot of our customers and the market to see the real aircraft for the first time. And it's a good opportunity to talk about it, show them real systems on the aircraft and really explain what is so vastly different in the design of this aircraft from conventional uh, mechanical control system aircraft. Okay, Larry, let's jump into that story then. Let's start with the, the name. So, you know, people are, are used to, uh, you know, 212, 214, the numbers and things like that. And now we've got the, the 505 and the, and the 525. Can you talk a bit about the numbering scheme and then the settling on the name Relentless? It's probably not as orchestrated as you might think. Actually, to name this aircraft, it's gone through a lot of uh, kind of early development conceptual names. It was called at one time Project Renaissance, and it was called Project X. And when we got to the point where we got internal approval to go forward and we were going to go to a public launch, we knew we had to come up with a name and a numbering scheme. You know, obviously, you got to go through all these trademark reviews and so what we did is like everything we've done on this program, the mantra of this program is everybody integrating, everybody working together, where it's our suppliers, our team, or our customers. So we went out to our team and uh, we asked everybody to submit, you know, what could the number be for this aircraft? What could the name be? And we got a huge list. And actually after that, it was just starting to go through and find the ones that, you know, from a, a trademark perspective or used on something else that we could come up with something that, that we know we could go out there and put a trademark on it and put it on our aircraft. So the 525 and the uh, the relentless name came from that process of going out to the team and the team submitting those ideas and then just working through the legal process and find one that we could use for the aircraft. Okay, Larry, you spoke about a couple of roles. So obviously, you know, from the outside looking in, the offshore oil and gas platform type work seems like a, a really big demand for it. You spoke about some of the corporate work and things like that. AME roles and things like that, is it is it still, is it getting too big for AME roles or is it still going to be aimed at aeromedical evacuation side of things? Probably most of the, it is it is a good size aircraft. It's, you know, for the emergency medical, it's, uh, you know, except in some type of a heavy SAR where you have emergency medical capability on board, it's probably not going to get a lot of just straight uh, emergency medical, you know, transporting from a helipad on a hospital to an accident is not uh, this class of aircraft. This is a 20,000 pound aircraft, but certainly there will be uh, EMS capability, I think, in some of the uh, the government SAR configurations for sure. So it's going to have that aspect probably in a much more capable aircraft. The oil and gas market, you know, our initial, uh, our initial assumption at the market beginning was that about 58% of the market for this aircraft would be oil and gas. And, you know, this, it's a long-term program. You don't, 
you know, it takes a while to design an aircraft from nothing, right? We have 10,000 parts on this aircraft. They're all brand new. It's a daunting task. We really designed this aircraft for the long term. And the, uh, you know, the business case that we put together four years ago is just as viable as it is today. The, the long-term oil and gas, the market's going to come back. You don't really pick that short-term insertion point where you put the product in the market. You look at the long-term viability. And we didn't design this aircraft for what we need today. We designed it for what the customers need in the next 10, 20, and 30 years. So we didn't want to start with something that was old technology. We wanted to meet all the latest, uh, obviously, all the latest certification and operational requirements. So, you know, our initial assumption was about half of the aircraft uh, would go into oil and gas. A uh, third would probably go into search and rescue. It's a fantastic search and rescue platform. It just has a great cabin layout, cabin size. We can extend the cabin back into the baggage bay, uh, which is 128 cubic feet, so it's huge. There's just a lot of capability. The overall uh, loiter time on this aircraft uh, with, with the fuel and the range, it's just a tremendous government uh, search and rescue aircraft. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity out there. The, the biggest surprise I alluded to earlier was this aircraft in a corporate VIP getting a lot more interest. And you know, initially we thought we would build probably a year of just start out with oil and gas, build a lot of them, really get good at it you know, really get the learning curve down in the factory and then branch out into some of the other ones. But the way the market is in the short term, there is lesser demand for the oil and gas. You know, a lot of the companies are honestly are working to survive. But when they come out of this, when oil prices come back, uh, they're going to want that next generation, that next level safety, next level productivity. And we're going to have the right product for them, fill the short term with the uh, with the corporate, with the VIP. So we're working with a lot of those customers today to spec out their ship. So I think the overall market segment percentages will probably end up being the same in the long run. The short term, obviously, we're having to be a little more uh, creative and adaptive as we work through the current downtime on the uh, energy side. Yeah, and I, I know, especially from the the aircrew side, that that downturn at the moment is uh, is hurting a lot of folks. So yeah, looking for that to pick back up. Uh, Larry, you spoke about the the clean sheet sort of starting from scratch, and we'll go through, I guess, the you know different components and the and the cockpit and the engines and things in a bit more detail later, but. Just in general, you know, what does that process look like? You start with an empty sheet. Do you go and pick, a, you know, the best engine on the market and then build a helicopter around the engines? Do you start with the rotor system? Do you start with the weight limit or the cabin design and then work backwards? Is there a kind of a design philosophy there? Actually, how the program started, and, and if you, you know, you probably thought of it in a broad context, you would say, yeah, this is how you start a program. So before we ever started talking about parts on a helicopter and what engine and what rotor and all that stuff, Actually, what we w- did is we went out and we did a very exhaustive search of the most common causes of rotorcraft accidents. And we didn't know what size of aircraft. We weren't looking at technology, but we wanted to understand where could technology add value and add safety. So we went out and we looked at all the uh, IHST reports. We looked at everything out to, to really understand what were the most common causes. And then we went and looked at all the technology that's out there today, whether it's technology we own or technology available in the market or even emerging technology that wasn't mature yet, and looked at what we could do from an OEM perspective to change that equation. So, you know, human factors are involved, obviously, but there's things that we can do to augment a pilot's capability to, number one, be aware of his surroundings, number two, to react to it quickly and correctly, and number three, to always be in control of the situation. So the very first thing we did is we went out and we understood what these common causes were. We started talking across our technical community of what technology could help. So we defined kind of a technology platform that could be translated basically to any aircraft of what were the new technologies that you can only, you know, the best technology, the one that really make a difference, 
can only be integrated into an aircraft when you start from the very beginning. You, they're not things that can necessarily be added on. So we really started with a list of these are the technologies that we want to bring forward, whether they add safety, they add reliability, they add uh, cost of ownership improvement, economics, proactive maintenance. There's a lot of knowledge capability, 100% digital aircraft. That was really the starting point. We kind of had this list of these are the technologies that everything has to earn its way on the aircraft. There's no new technology on this aircraft just because it's cool and it would be nice to have. Everything costs money. Everything weighs something. Everything has to have a value. That's how we started the program. And then we sat down in December of 2010 with a group of our customers. And these are customers we've known for a long time, but we said, you know what? We're not here to sell you an aircraft. You may never buy one. We're not going to talk about money. We're going to talk about designing a helicopter. And we want you all to put your bell badges on and think like bell helicopter, because no matter how this aircraft gets used in its end configuration, it all has a common starting point. So tell us, what you think that future needs to be, and then we're going to work together, and everything that you tell us, we're going to come back, and we're going to validate that we got it right, because our customers told us, hey, you know, Bell, you've come to us before. You asked us what you wanted in a helicopter, and then you took what we told you. You just went away, and you came back later and showed us the helicopter. We want to be involved every step of the way. We want you to come back with the solution, the best compromise, or sorry, the best design is a compromise. It's compromised between cost, speed, performance, weight, you name it. So we want to make sure you got it right. So they said, if you do that, we're going to help you. If we see that you're not listening, uh, we'll never be back. So that was actually how our first meeting went. And uh, they told us, um, you know, we needed something under 20,000 pounds. They told us we needed, a, you know, we never had enough baggage volume. We need baggage volume the same as a, as a heavy aircraft. Safety is number one. We have to have a CAD-A aircraft. We cannot have an aircraft that cannot fly gross weight without compromising safety. That has to be the non-negotiable standard of everything that we talk about in design. And then they gave us some other key, what I call the, the key uh, parameters of the aircraft, the basic things that it had to do. And obviously, you know, they're Christmas shopping, right? They want an aircraft that can act like a 20, 30,000 pound aircraft, but costs like a 15,000 pound aircraft, yeah, right? So we have to... We have to, you know, it's Christmas shopping. There's no dollar signs attached. They're, they want everything, just like a kid at Christmas. So we took all that away, and we really did an analysis of what was the most important, what did they say they need, and closing a design on that. And we came back in six months. We invited them all back to Fort Worth, and we actually had built a full-scale uh, wood mock-up of the aircraft, how we thought it would be, we had answers for everything. This is the speed we think. This is the weight we think. This is the cabin size. This is the the baggage volume. This is what the cockpit looks like. It was very rough. It's made out of wood, but it gave them something they could touch and feel and sit in it. And every one of them said, wow, you're listening to us. You are doing this different. We are a part of the design team. You have us for as long as you need us. And that team in 2010 is still with us today. We are actually meeting with those same people next week in uh, Heli Expo so they can see that real aircraft for the first time. Uh, they can see their signature on the aircraft. I had them each give me a signature and I blew them up and we put them all over the tail boom because their fingerprint, their DNA is all over this aircraft. They might as well have their signature on it because they, every one of those customers can walk to that aircraft and they can point to things and they say, I had an input on that design. That part should have my name on it because I'm the one that, that helped design it. And some of, our, some of our customers have said, you know what, I've been in the maintenance environment for the last 30 years. For me to take all that knowledge that I have and pay it forward to the next generation of maintenance of mechanics because I helped design that next helicopter, 
is really an exclamation point in my career. So that opportunity to be part of that next generation from a maintenance perspective, same with the pilots. You know, we're taking all that knowledge that all these people have every day that have been working and flying on these helicopters. We're putting it all into that next machine. So we have taken this very seriously. We have all this new technology. We know what the customer needs. We've looked at safety, what we can do to add, and we have come up with an incredible machine and things on this aircraft that you have never seen on another helicopter that only happen in those conversations between our team and with our customers. So that's how the process started. And we've had uh, secure websites, we've had phone calls, we've had personal meetings with these customers ever since the very beginning, every step of the way, every, you know, all the thousands of design decisions we made, we got input from the customer and we came back to the customer to validate we got it right. And sometimes we had to change it because we didn't get it right. But everything on this aircraft was signed off by our customers. So that's that's the kind of the high level how we how we did the program. Okay, because you know, I saw the signatures on the on the tail beam and some of the photos and wasn't sure if that was like the, the people who physically built that machine were kind of riding off on it. But that's you know, I guess that's similar too. So that's the external team. Uh, Larry, what about the the internal team there at Bell and I guess the you know the the add on programs? How many people roughly would be involved in not only just the, obviously the building, but the actual design process for the for the five two five. At program peak, you know we've been bouncing between, you know we were probably around three hundred, then we went up to five hundred. We're probably around four hundred people right now in all aspects of the uh, team. We've done a lot of things different on this team, and actually we sat down at the beginning as an internal team of what are we going to do different if we're going to be better. We're not going to be better because we want it more or we're smarter than the last team that designed the helicopter. We fundamentally have to do some things different. We actually came up with a list of things that we want to do different. So you, you don't, you don't get a program done quicker by doing it faster. You, you compress it, you make mistakes. You do it by being more concurrent. So if you look at how, you know, we designed helicopters in the past, the engineer would design and he would throw it over the fence to the procurement guy saying, go get the part. He'd throw it over the fence to the manufacturing guy saying, go build it. He throw all the fence to the support guy saying, go support it, and, you know, figure out how to maintain it. We brought all those people to the left. We put them all in the room at the very beginning. We had A&P mechanics actually sitting in our design room with a toolbox with a standard set of tools. Uh, we had manufacturing people there. We had our procurement people there and our engineers there all working together, putting all the requirements for performance, for maintenance, for build, everything, loading it into the system from the very beginning. So there were no handoffs. There were no misinterpretations. Everybody got their say from the very beginning. Everybody was part of the process. Every engineer that designed a part knew where and how it was going to be installed on the floor, and he knew where and how a mechanic was going to access it, uh, return it to service, or replace it. That's probably the biggest fundamental change we made in terms of how we work as a team that has changed how we design helicopters at Bell. Every program since then, the 505, the V280, has used that same process that, that we used on the 525. And that was a fundamental shift because, you know, if you do everything serially, you hand it off, you're going to miss things. Things are going to get misinterpreted. You're never going to have the optimal design if you don't find out later what it takes to maintain or access it. So we built a lot of, you know, we would have designers actually build additive parts, stereolithography parts out of plastic just to go over to the AMP mechanics bench and pull out a wrench and see if he could get a wrench in there. The first time I had an engineer come in my office and say, what would a customer want in this situation? I knew we had them. And we spent a lot of time taking engineers and doing what I call a day in a life where they would go out and they would spend a day and a night with an offshore operator flying on that helicopter during the day and then working on that helicopter at night with the maintenance guy riding a bicycle out in the field with a flashlight on his head, 
working on that helicopter at night so it can fly again the next day. And they just had no clue how the product was that they were using. So it was about connecting the people. Um, one of the first questions I was asked when I came to Bell is how do you get engineers to design what the customer wants, not what the engineer thinks they want? My answer was pretty simple. Every engineer wants to design the right product, but they're data-driven. They're not going to listen to the marketing guy. They need to see for themselves. So connect the engineer with the customer, with the maintenance guy, with the pilot, so they can see for themselves how they can use the aircraft, what are the issues with the aircraft, and how I can do it better. I mean, there's simple things on an aircraft that, you know, thousands of AMP mechanics have probably complained about. Why is every fastener in this access panel a different length? It's so hard to put it back on because I don't know which one goes where. And just simple things like that. Why do I have to pull this LRU to get to that LRU? Just common sense things that we never closed that loop and just got all the right people in the room and talked about it. All those kind of learning experiences and conversations have been part of this design process to give us an incredible product that we have today that we would never have had without those conversations. Wow. Okay. There's a lot goes into it. Okay. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm conscious of time and I know that the audience for this will be really keen to hear the, you know, the technical bits and the, and the things that actually fit inside the helicopter. So, uh, let's dive into those things. And I know some of these okay. figures are, are still in, in flux as, as flight testing happens, but can you just give us some, some rough figures for people to wrap their heads around in terms of, you know, speed, range, endurance, weight, uh, those sorts of, you know, off the shelf stats. Sure. Yep. So this is a 500 nautical mile aircraft. That's kind of the knee of the curve. We can fly nine passengers in a fully configured, heavily configured OGP aircraft. You know, one of the things our customers told us, don't measure performance in, you know, pretend, you know, a, an aircraft with no kits and perfect blowing winds. You know, measure it in real world, measure it in ISA plus 20, a hot day, measure it in a fully configured aircraft, measure uh, passengers with baggage, you know, so, so everything we've done on the performance side, nobody else does it. We've measured everything in what I would call real world numbers. So when we designed this aircraft to fly 500 nautical miles, that's an ISO plus 20. That's in a fully configured aircraft. Um, and we can fly nine passengers, 500 miles. We can fly over 16 passengers, 250 nautical miles. So it's got a lot of range to it. It has 4,500 pounds of fuel on it. It has a lot of range. And even if you don't have to fly that far, what a lot of our offshore operators are saying, you know what, right now I have offshore alternates. I don't like that. But with this kind of fuel uh, capability, I can have uh, much safer. I can have uh, onshore alternates. So it gives me that capability, even though I don't need to fly those, you know, 200, 300 uh, nautical mile missions. So we initially had uh, target our uh, our uh, B&E at uh, 165. But uh, we're going to greatly increase that, I believe. We've been flying, um, I'm not going into some numbers, but we're flying well over 190 knots even today. We flew faster today than we've ever flown. This is this aircraft's incredibly stable. It just wants to fly. We were looking at long-range crews at 140. We already bumped it to 145. The aircraft is, we're just finding out that the rotor is incredibly stable. This aircraft just wants to go. We don't even know how fast it'll go, but it's... Uh, We've exceeded Mach 1 on the blade tips already. It's it's just doing phenomenal. It's a, it's a very capable aircraft, and uh, I, the pilots just love to fly it. They've been flying the simulator for two years. We have an engineering simulator where we really tested out the whole system. They said the aircraft flies better than the simulator. So it's just it's just been a dream to fly. The aircraft is just exceeding all of our expectations, which is a really good thing from a program perspective. Absolutely. Okay, let's jump into the heart of it. So the the engines that drive this is the uh, General Electric's uh, CT7, and I mean this is fitted in a, in a huge range of different airframes. So can you tell us a little bit about yeah, I guess the engine 
what was the decision behind choosing it? Was it you know, was it proven off the shelf? Was there parts available? Uh, what was the thought process for the engines? So you're right in the comment you said earlier, you really pick an engine, you design everything around it. You want to optimize the engine. So actually, when we were talking this class of aircraft, you know, we had some engine options, but there's only one supplier name that our customer advisory panel actually mentioned by name, and that was GE. They said, we have to have the GE CT7 engine uh, because we know it has great SFCs. It's a known entity. It's a very reliable engine. We know how to maintain it. Uh, that needs to be the engine. So for the class of engine that we needed for this aircraft, our customers picked that engine, and then we designed the rotor disc to get to Cat A capability. We designed everything around that engine, 1,800 shaft horsepower. The CT7, the 2F1, is the designator for this engine because that's the unique interface to our systems and our airframe. But uh, it was really our customers that picked that engine based on the class of helicopter, and it's proven to be very, very a good choice. And I was amazed that before I put these questions together, you know, I did a bit of research on, on bits and pieces. And, yeah, the amount of airframes it's in, like everything at the moment, like the civilian version, the S-70, the S-92, the 189, the H-90, there's in Super Cobras, uh, it's going to be in the, in the 55. Like it just seems like it's, a, you know, a, a almost industry standard engine. It also helps with, you know, being used on that many platforms. It helps, you know, we're not just designing new aircraft. We're making sure we're going to the next level from a maintenance support perspective. So having an engine like that that is used on a lot of platforms around the world really helps with part and maintenance availability to all of our customers. So that's a good thing. So we want, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's about our customers being successful. And it takes it takes a very good platform. It takes the right parts and it takes the right maintenance and technical support. And having an engine like that that is out there that is known in, in the market other product flying, it just helps that equation towards customer success. And Larry, is there an APU? What's the, the start process with that engine? Is it it's a power pack separately, like a hydraulic accumulator, or is there a, you know, another start process? This aircraft has an APU, and it was originally driven by a customer design requirement where they said they needed the cabin cooling without blades turning. So we, we actually had two choices. We could go with a... Uh, we could go with a clutch in the drive system, or we could go with an APU. Uh, we looked at cost, we looked at weight, we looked at uh, reliability and maintenance, and we also looked at added benefits of uh, auxiliary power with the APU, and the APU became the right solution for the customer. So it's basic on the aircraft. Uh, it's a Honeywell APU. It's an APU that's got you know millions of hours on it. It's on it's on a Cessna Citation product. Uh, it's on Bombardier product. It's a very good, very reliable APU. Very easy to troubleshoot and replace. It has its own separate access door on the uh, back of the cowl, and uh, that's our baseline solution for that design requirement. And you said it was a digital aircraft. So can mechanics basically walk up to the machine, plug a laptop in, and then pull off all the engine data? Or is it a, you know, is it back-to-base reporting? Uh, what sort of electronics, you know, how does it actually interface with the rest of the aircraft? I'd probably have to spend an entire day to really explain <laughs> the fully integrated maintenance capability of a 100% digital aircraft, but uh, this is truly the next generation. So I'm going to start with a, a basic piece of architecture on the fly-by-wire system that will kind of help frame it up. So you would think with a fly-by-wire system, this thing's going to be so complex, it's going to be a nightmare to work on. But one of the interesting things about a fly-by-wire system, it's, it's the same technology we have on the V-22s is with our fly-by-wire system, we have what we call triplex systems. We have three completely independent electrical systems, hydraulic systems, actuation systems on the aircraft, completely independent. They don't even know the other one exists. 
If you looked at one of our actuators on our main rotor, it has three separate barrels. Each one of those can fly the aircraft all by itself. They don't know the other two exist in that same barrel. So with three systems, three hydraulic systems, no other commercial aircraft has three hydraulic systems, three actuation systems, three electrical systems. Something magic happens when you have three systems. All helicopters today, mechanical helicopters, have two systems. When you have two systems in a helicopter and something goes wrong, all you know is something is wrong. You don't know if you're getting two parameters, you don't know which one's right and which one's wrong. You just know that one of them's not agreeing with the other one and I have a problem. When you have three systems, you have voting rights now. You have one, one says one thing and the other two say something else. You know that the two saying something else, that's the answer. That is what's right. You know which one's wrong. So the aircraft is designed to be very fault tolerant. It's smart enough to know with the computers where it's getting erroneous data, where it's getting real data, where it has a bad component, where it doesn't have a bad component. And it is very good at, it has a lot of built-in test capability. It has a lot of self-diagnostic capability. And it is constantly gathering parameters all over the aircraft digitally, not only what the component's doing, but the environment it's working and how much torque is that tail rotor required in, in, in that, you know, that actual mission profile. And then we don't stop there. We take all this data and we have the capability to manage the data. If it's a very critical maintenance failure, you're obviously you have all your CAS, ICAS messaging, all everything you need to, for the pilot to safely fly the aircraft, but it can also transmit some of that maintenance data off the aircraft via SATCOM back to the home base. You know, if I'm flying an aircraft and I'm heading back and I got a hangar bearing to start and trend into the yellow, it's not bad yet, but it's starting to trend that way. It can automatically, the pilot doesn't need to know about it. It can send a note back to the maintenance guy in the hangar and say, you know what? We probably want to replace this hangar bearing when we land, get the parts, get the guys ready so we can get a quick turn. It's just a way to be more proactive. It has the capability to tell the operator things that are going to fail before they fail. It's about reducing unscheduled maintenance. So it has capability for critical things to transmit in flight. We have a capability for certain data that can pull that you can do a quick post-flight download of, of some key parameters. It has at the end of the day a, a larger set of data that can be downloaded quickly. As soon as that aircraft lands, it can wirelessly send it right there to your maintenance hangar. Or it has a raw data file that it'll have thousands and thousands of parameters that it's collecting that you could pull all the raw data that you want and analyze it. So it's fully integrated to the systems. Every serialized part has an RFID tag, so that can integrate right into your maintenance system. You can walk around your factory without crawling and opening all the access panels. What part do I have? What's the history of that part? The digital technology has allowed us to really go to that next level of maintenance capability to be more proactive, to know the health of the aircraft before anything ever breaks. And then Bell Helicopters actually standing up a service. A lot of our operators in big fleets, they manage, they look at all that data, they disseminate it, they understand FOQA hums, FDM data and, and how to manage it, but we're going to have a lot of different services provided to Bell Helicopters so we can help with that. We can disseminate the data. We can tell an operator, how is your APU reliability compared to the fleet? How is your generator running? How are you doing against everybody else? So we can improve safety and reliability across the fleet. That should not be a competitive thing. That should be the more data we have, the better for everybody. This is a 100% MSG3 on-condition aircraft. We're going to be going through the maintenance procedures once a year with the regulatory authorities based on all this data that we're learning to optimize the maintenance tasks to, you know, compress the intervals where it makes sense, to extend them where it makes sense, to get the most cost-effective and safest maintenance program. This data will help us do that. Wow, because, yeah, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking that my next question was going to be, does all that fleet information feedback uh, to Bell? It sounds like it does, but... 
<laughs> it's going to be a heap of data to sort through. That's amazing. You mentioned the, the fly-by-wire system, and I put out the questions for folks on email and in, on Reddit, and most of the ones that came back from people related to the, the fly-by-wire uh, system. So I'll just read a couple out to you, Larry, and then we can dive in and talk about that. Uh, the first question was from ZJ in California, and he says, I'm curious about the trickle-down effect of fly-by-wire systems. In, say, 50 years, what percentage of the fleet will be using these systems? Uh, James Newton says, you know, I'd love to get the know the reason for the, the layout, the primary flight controls. And then Simon mm-hmm. Newman, he was asking, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages of the fly-by-wire system? And there's one here from Gordy who's talking about the the setup of the controls and then how that relates to, I guess, vertical reference flying. So if we tackle it in broad terms and then we can come down to anything that we miss there, yeah, can you take us through, uh, you know, pilot sitting in the seat, the, the controls, and then the... Sure you know, the fly-by-wire system up to the actual control services. Okay, so so we do have a completely different cockpit, and it's not just to be cool and different. It, it really is about functionality, safety, awareness, situational, you know, awareness in the cockpit. So uh, with the G5000 cockpit, we have actually touchscreen computers in the center pedestal. So it's the first aircraft to have tact- tactical interface with the aircraft itself. So the whole design of the cockpit, we call it the Arc Horizon Awareness Reactive and Control, is really around getting the right data to the pilot when he needs it, augmenting the pilot's capability, give him good viewing. So there's a lot of things that you may not think intuitively add to that, uh, but I'll give you some examples. So better over-the-nose viewing can be achieved by moving the pilot's seat closer to the flight deck. Moving the cyclic between his legs allows us to do that. We can do that with an electronic system. He can see over the flight deck much easier. It also then gives him the opportunity now that he can touch the MFDs, the PFDs much easier. He can touch all the the touchscreen control for all the non-critical data. Um, We have solid state circuit breakers in this aircraft, no moving parts. So there's no big mechanical circuit breaker panels in the cockpit. All his uh, circuit breakers are right there on that pedestal under glass. He can collar them. He can pull them. He can do everything he can like on a mechanical system. All his radio tuning, his navigation is all there. And we call it touchscreen, but in reality, it acts like a touchscreen. It looks like a touchscreen. When you touch it, it looks like, you know, it shows you that you physically touched it. But in reality, we have an IR field across there uh, that makes it act like touchscreen because if you're flying in cold weather and you have gloves on, touchscreen doesn't work. So we've designed this for the helicopter with an IR field that that looks and acts like touchscreen. So the layout of moving the controls to the left and right, having adjustable armrests, makes it much more comfortable. This is an aircraft you're going to be in for four or five hours. You need to be comfortable. You don't have to have a hand between your legs holding a cyclic. With fly-by-wire, uh, there's so many capabilities. And it's, you know, the one of the things we did very early in this program to get people to understand is we built a marketing simulator so people could fly it. I can explain to you some of the differences, but until you fly it, especially if you're a seasoned pilot, it's like everything's turned upside down. Less is more. When I want to control the aircraft more, I actually control it less. But before I explain all that, the first thing I'll say is our philosophy for fly-by-wire is what I call the Boeing methodology, which says, I'm going to fly this aircraft like I could fly a mechanical aircraft. Sometimes I have to get into the limits. I'm going to let you do that with fly-by-wire. I'm not going to limit what you can do. The pilot always has control of the aircraft. I'm going to let you get into the limits. And you know what? If I have to get into the power limits, there's probably something happening outside that I need to be looking at. So... What we've done and what we can do with the electronic system is we can provide a feel in the control where he feels a little bump when he gets into the limits and he feels more and more resistance. It says, you know what, 
you need to be looking outside, not at the gauges. I'm letting you know through your hand, which they actually a quicker way to process that input from a human perspective, letting you know that you're in the limit. So I'm going to let you do that. So that's one of the major questions we usually get on fly-by-wire. Are you using the Airbus methods that says I can't get into the limits, which doesn't always make sense on a helicopter, or using the Boeing? We use the Boeing philosophy. We always have a V-22, 609, V-280. Uh, we want you to fly the full capability aircraft. So what the system does is it jumps in where it can to help you, and it, but it helps you, um, you know, it'll always let you override the system. So I'm going to talk about some scenarios that really show you the value add of fly-by-wire. So if I'm just flying an aircraft, let's say I'm doing a whole bunch of rig hops, I can provide a single axis control. And the way I like to describe it, it's a four axis digital autopilot that all by itself transitions in and out without you ever having to engage or disengage, depending on how you're flying the aircraft. So if I wanna make a bank, I can provide a single axis. I don't have to do anything with the, with the pedal. It's gonna hold everything. If I only provide one input, it's only gonna change that input. If I'm flying around a rig, and degraded visuals, and I'm trying to find a hole in, the last thing I want to worry about is what my altitude is. It's going to hold that altitude for me so I can focus on looking out the window and getting the aircraft safely in. So even when I'm flying the aircraft, if I put an input and let go of the controls, it's going to hold my last input until I provide another input. So I can provide a single, I can provide multiple inputs, it's going to hold my last input, it's only going to change the input that I give it and whatever axis that is. If I get disoriented and the aircraft gets into a uh, unsafe attitude, I can let go of the controls. This is an example of really a pilot would want to hold it more to control it and get it back safe. I can let go of the controls. The system knows it's in an unsafe attitude. It will return it back to its last safe attitude, and the pilot continues safe flying. If I'm taking off a heli deck, uh, full gross weight, doing a CAT A PC2E departure, and before decision point, I lose an engine, that system's going to know before the pilot would ever see the gauge, would ever realize it. It's going to set that aircraft back down right where it took off. The only thing the pilot would have to do is maybe lift up a little bit on the collective right on landing to soften the blow a little bit, but it's going to safely bring those people back on the deck. If I lost an engine after decision point, the system's going to know it much quicker than the pilot also. It's going to automatically transition the power to the good engine, optimize that capability much quicker than the pilot could do it, and continue safe flying from that point. If I get into an AEI event, it's automatically going to know that. It's automatically going to take that inertia, that energy in those golden seconds, and it's going to optimize the control heading and the engine power, uh, the residual inertia of that system, and it's going to transition into an auto rotation mode uh, for the pod to then take over and manage the descent of that aircraft. So it jumps in for those critical split seconds. The pilot can always override it. It's there to reduce all the inputs that a pilot makes during just normal flying to reduce his overall input and his fatigue. And basically, with a fly-by-wire system, you're really a systems manager. You're telling the computer what you want the aircraft to do, and the computer is doing it much more effectively than you could do it. So what pilots say is it knows it's like knows what I want it to do, and it makes me look really good, and it does it even better. So there's so much capability reducing overall fatigue and providing input in those critical split seconds but it always lets the pilot use the aircraft how he wants. And there's a lot of safety capabilities in those scenarios that I just talked about that once pilots fly it and get it, they're like, oh my gosh, this really is game changing. This really is going to make a difference in how I fly and, and my capability. Another comment I forgot to mention on the cockpit layout is we have a can of tail rotor on this aircraft because it allows the aircraft to fly more horizontally because it provides some lift at the back end of the aircraft, which also helps with over the nose viewing in a hover. 
So there's another thing where we're really thinking about safety, pilot situational awareness, and his overall capability to control the aircraft. Yeah, I was going to ask about that later on because if you look at the way the vertical fin is angled, it's it's almost well probably not so much the fin, but probably more the actual tail rotor. If you think of the, the centerline thrust on a on a Black Hawk, that kind of points up, and on the five to five, it's sort of below the horizon. So yeah, can you talk just a little bit more about the the angle of the the tail rotor, and, and I guess the yeah. as a, a CAG effect there. But yeah, if you can talk about that. Yeah, so I mentioned the hover. It helps us hover horizontally, but it also it broadens our CG envelope. So some aircraft, if you're only partially filling the aircraft, you have to put people in assigned seats. With that additional lift at the very back end of that tail boom, which is very long because we have a 55-foot rotor disc, it provides, with that little angle, it provides additional lift at the back end that broadens that overall CG envelope. So it really helps with the loading so you're not limited in your loading across that cabin. That's the whole reason for it. I think, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but I thought the Blackhawk, they talked about, you know, 4% of the lift came from the tail rotor. But in, in the 525, it looks like the, the tail rotor is actually thrusting below the, the horizontal. So it actually looks like it would be, you know, a negative lift on the on the back end. And I guess that's, you know, it depends on the, the length of the cockpit forward with the, the rotor hub and things like that. But I don't know, is, was there, a, is there any design considerations with that? No, it, it's definitely providing lift at the back end of the aircraft. Okay. Um Go ahead. No, that's right. Um, okay, so back in the in the cockpit. So we probably didn't really describe the controls as much as if someone's looking at a photo. It, it almost looks like you're sitting in a lounge chair with four armrests, and then the mm-hmm. the collective actually doesn't sort of go to the floor. It's almost like a Chinook uh, collective, where it's sort of a you know a couple of inches of collective and then into a like a control rod, and then the right hand it's almost like a, a fighter grip. It's it's just a like a little joystick on the on the right hand side. Yeah, they're really both joysticks. They have force field in them. Uh, you're really just moving your wrist. Uh, you can adjust that armrest to get just that perfect ergonomic, and, and the, the pilots love it. But you do have feel back into it. One of the things we've done is we have uh, we actually have mechanical linkages under the cockpit floor that link left controls and link right controls, so the pilot and co-pilot always know what the other one's doing. Uh, they cannot provide conflicting input. So if I move. If I move the cyclic on one side, it's moving on the other side. So it, the pilots always know the position it's in is the position that it's in. So uh, it acts very much mechanical, but it, and with the inputs and with the the solid linkage. Uh, but it truly is all. So the you know the the triplex systems start right there from that control all the way through to the rotor head, and and there's three separate systems flying that aircraft. Okay, I'm just going to cherry pick because there's so many things to talk about on this aircraft, but. You know, I've, most everything I still fly is all steam gauge uh, driven, but you talked about the horizon system for the, the flight deck. And if you look at photos, it, it looks like there's things missing. Like it just doesn't look like there's enough switches and controls and things that you would normally yeah. expect in an aircraft that size. But the can you talk about the, the main display with the synthetic um, vision behind it and I guess yeah. the information overlay? So that would be your main display. Uh, when folks are looking at that, what are they seeing? So anybody who's been in a you know a state-of-the-art integrated cockpit display, two MFDs, two PFDs, you know different pilots can set the configuration how they want, and it's stored memory, so I don't have to go reset everything. But you know you can overlay your EVS, your SVS, you know everything is you know it's it's you know really where integrated systems are going is providing the critical data to the pilot when he needs it. Right? If I'm getting to the limits, it's going to pull up that uh, indicator. It's going to pull up the data relative to HDAS is is uh, basic on the aircraft. A lot of system capability, and it's really about, you know, within that big screen, 
you have gotten rid of a lot of steam gauges, right? It's all integrated in that display. They're totally reversionary. I can lose one, I can reverse over to the other. Probably a lot of the knobs and buttons you don't see are integrated actually into that uh, touchscreen controller because it is, it's very intuitive. It's a very shallow navigation system as most Garmin products are. So you're not digging and hunting for things, but you know, like all your radio tuning, all your flight management, performance database, all that stuff, that's all integrated in those touchscreen controllers. That's probably where the bulk of uh, where you would see panels and panels of buttons and knobs have been integrated into that. Um, it all acts like, uh, you know, touching it all acts like it's tactile buttons. It also has, uh, uh, what's interesting is for helicopters with this touchscreen controller, it has, a, it has probably about a one-inch raised bezel on it. So you can actually brace your hand with your thumb and your third finger to stabilize it when you're flying, although this aircraft is very smooth and uh, with all the isolation and vibration. But it also has a cursor control and knobs at the bottom. So if you want to use it like a conventional uh, uh, controller, you can. So most of the integration, uh, you know, typical in the integrated displays, but probably a lot of it is in those two touchscreen controllers that are redundant left and right. Yeah, and the thing I loved was that um, the terrain mesh. So you're basically looking at a, at a computer screen with your, uh, mm-hmm. you know, almost like a heads-up display or the, the compass rose and all your information in the middle. But then the whole back of the screen is filled up, yeah, with like a 3D terrain mesh that rolls through. So, you know, again, it's pretty standard with these types of things, but as someone who hasn't used it, that stands out as the, as the biggest feature to me. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, in terms of what state-of-the-art avionics are out there, what you would see in any uh, Part 25 business jet, uh, part 121 commercial airline you're you have that same level of integrated technology and it's uh this this system was actually uh, first certified on the citation 10 the new citation 10 that came out about two years ago so it is it is definitely the latest and the greatest uh, we had to go in and do further testing for salt wa- uh, salt fog for vibration for the helicopter version uh, but it is the you know it's the state of the art what uh pilots flying modern product would expect to see in a modern helicopter it's you know nice and shiny, and again, from an aircrew point of view, there's you know lots of cool tech to play with. In the time we've got left, I'm just going to quickly see if we can cover uh, maybe the, the main rotor system, the tail boom design, and then some of the I guess uh, the crash or the airworthiness uh, type features. So the main rotor system, it's a you know it's, it's a five blade, which I think is that's a first for Bell possibly. Yes, it's our first articulated hub five bladed rotor. And it is a very big rotor disc because we want to, because of the, the CAD-A requirement, right? So one of the things I like to say is capability without compromise. And if you look at a lot of product out there today, they can go 165 knots, but nobody will fly that fast because it would just, the vibe levels would just be horrendous, right? Or I can fly this much payload, but if I do that, I'm going to have uh, exposure on takeoff from a, from a helipad. So I'm, I'm going to compromise payload for safety, safety for payload. I'm going to compromise comfort for speed, speed for comfort. Well, you know what, guys? I want all those things. If it can go this fast, it can go this far and carry this many people. I want to do it safely. I want to do it comfortably. So that was that was really part of that design in, in that whole rotor disc. So going with an articulated hub, uh, five blades versus four, you know, it would seem that uh, the more blades, the more components, the less reliable, the more maintenance. But for this class of aircraft, Going to five blades actually reduced the stress and loads on the blades uh, versus five that actually improved the overall reliability. So intuitively, more parts, the more maintenance costs. Uh, with a five-bladed system for this class of helicopter and the disc loading, it really made a lot of sense. We have a very low low disc loading on this aircraft. Uh, that drives uh, a smooth ride. That drives reliability, durability in the system. So that was really driving that design. This blade was designed 
for high speed and for efficiency. And we are very good at blade design. This aircraft has seven transmissions. We, uh, we talked very early in this program, what are we really good at and what are we not so good at? So what we're good at, let's do. What we're not the best at, let's go find the people in the world who are the best at them and let's bring them on board. So that's what we did. And we are very good at blade design. We're very good at transmission design. So I'll give you an example of one of the things that we've done. Our last, our last gearbox that we designed was for the 430 and the 429. We ran that transmission till, uh, you know, we drain all the oil out, we put the plug back in, then we run it, we see how long it goes before it breaks. Uh, that transmission went four hours, and actually the transmission didn't break, the test stand broke. So that was our last design. So what we've done since then is we've gone out and looked at new technology. We've gone out and we, every time there's an incident in the industry, we learn from it. We go understand it because that happened to us. What could we do to prevent it or, or reduce that, you know, that from occurring? And we've continually worked on what would those design improvements would be. So for the 525, we took a transmission that we've done very well at, and then we added a lot of new technology to make it even safer. So one of the examples is with the two GE engines, we have a reduction gearbox. The RPM coming off the, the engines is 25,000 RPM. Uh, we reduce that down to 6,000 RPM right there at the engine where we have redundant systems. So it really acts like part of the engine. If that gearbox were to fail, it's like I lost that engine. I shut that engine down. I still have a good engine. I'm still safe. Those shafts go into a main transmission that only turns at 6,000 RPM. It's a very, very slow turning transmission. There's no high speed gears in there. It's really made for robustness, for durability. We've done things like, it's called isotropic super finish. Every gear looks like it's got a mirror finish on it and they're beautiful, but it's really about in a lots of lube event, holding on to every molecule of oil that might you know, still be clinging to those gears. And the smoother that finish, uh, the more likelihood it'll hold that residual oil and not fling it off in droplets. So we provide a little gap between our gears. So in a loss of lube, those gears expand with heat. They don't start fretting each other. We mounted the oil cooler right on the transmission. All the lines are integral to the casting so no lines can come loose. There's just a whole list of things that we've done in these transmissions to make them safe, to make them reliable, to make them durable. We've used a lot of magnesium, but there's been magnesium corrosion in the past. It reduces a lot of weight, but we can't have corrosion. So what we've done there is we went out with a new alloy called EV31A, which has no trace elements of iron, which we come to find out is what caused corrosion in the past. But then we didn't stop there. That bare EV31A is more corrosion resistant than aluminum, but we went on top of that and we put a coating on it that's actually molecularly bonded to the surface of the magnesium that's called tagnite. And we added a hard enamel over that called rock hard that looks like a hard enamel, almost like on a bathtub. So there's a hot, lot of titanium, a lot of composite in this rotor system. And it's about reliability. It's about maintenance. It's about environmental protection and about having a safe system. So there's everything we've done in the past that we're very good at. We've taken the next step in technology on, on the rotor system and on the drive system. Man, there's some smart engineers out there. That's, uh, it sounds like stuff from the you know, space programs. Okay, Larry, let's go with the, the tail boom then. Um, now, often you know, yeah. you'll see on, on old Hueys and things like that, they'll have the, you know, the strakes, um, like two metal plates basically down the length of the tail boom on the left-hand side. And the idea, again, there was to try and get a bit more performance out of it. But when you look at the right. 525, like looking at the tail boom, it looks pretty normal. So the design changes must be fairly subtle there. But can you talk about the the design there and, and what you're trying to achieve. Yes, absolutely. It's actually one of my favorite stories because there's actually some nudist technology on this tail boom that no other helicopter in the world has and we've actually patented it. 
and we call it our lift assist tail boom. So if you look at the uh, some of the tail booms out there that have strakes on them that are providing differential pressure on one side versus the other to counter some of the uh, you know tail rotor torque required, we've actually gone to the next level, and it, it's so ingenious. Um, you wonder why somebody didn't come up with it before. So. You know, basically what we have done is you look at all the downwash coming off the main rotor head, right? So what can we do with that, right? It, it, it doesn't really help us when it hits the tail boom, but let's take that and turn it into good. So what we've done, if you, if you cut through that tail boom and you turned it 90 degrees sideways, it's going to look like the quarter cord of a fixed wing leading edge on a typical aircraft, right? So basically we've turned that 90 degrees. So it's really acting like an airfoil. So what's happening is that downdraft is coming, it's hitting that airfoil and it's causing a vacuum on one side and pressure on the other much more effectively than a, than a straight can do. And it's creating counter torque that reduces how much horsepower we need on the tail rotor to counter the uh, rotational torque of the main rotor. So what it has done is it's given us about 400 pounds of additional hover capability uh, just by reducing that and giving us that additional capability in our main rotor system. Uh, and managing that airflow for goodness rather than bad. So you have to look at it closely. Um, in the mock-up, you really can't see it. We didn't put it all out there. But in the production aircraft, if you go to Heli Expo, you can really see that when you look at that tail boom from the back, it is not symmetrical by any means, and you've never seen a tail boom like it. So, you know, the perfect design in an engineer's world is something that doesn't weigh anything and something that doesn't cost anything. This is one of those designs. So it's pretty tremendous. It's simple. It's new. And it's very effective. 400 pounds is a lot of capability to give in payload in a hover. So uh, it's one of those good news stories I like to talk about. And no maintenance cost involved as well. It's just a, a static thing that just sits there. Yes, there's there's no maintenance. It's just a shape, right? It's uh, instead of an oval or a circle, it just has a different shape to it. So there's zero impact from a cost or weight or maintenance perspective, but it adds a lot of goodness in performance and capability. So Here's an engineer and connecting with a customer. What do you need out of the aircraft? What can I do different to give you something you don't have today? It's an excellent example of technology you can only get on, on the 525. The pilot seats, it looks, again, in videos and, and photos I've seen, that the, the seats basically slide and rotate backwards towards the main cabin, and that's how you get in and out of the cabin. Mm-hmm. So I guess as far as egress goes, and again, you know, we're looking at a, an offshore aircraft which is going to spend a lot of time over water. Can you talk about some of the cabin design in terms of crashworthiness, water, egress, and, and those bits and pieces like that. Like the, It doesn't look like those seats at the front would stroke much, like just because the, they, they look like they, they slide on the, on the floor of the aircraft. So we call that a J-Track design. It's the first aircraft to have that. And actually, it's a perfect example of a new design never seen in an in a aircraft before that only came about between a co- customer and a design team having a conversation. So this is a class of aircraft where I may or may not have crew doors. An S-92 doesn't have crew doors. You can crawl over the center pedestal like a fixed-wing aircraft. Doors weigh, weigh something. They cost something. They make noise. You know, if we didn't have a door, it saved us about 68 pounds. Obviously, there's some noise there. Um, obviously, you know, there's cost there. But doors on helicopters in the cockpit are, very, are a very uh, emotional thing for a pilot. I have safety right there. I have ease of ingress and egress. And some of the offshore workers, they're getting out of that aircraft five or six times. You know, they're chalking the aircraft, they're unchalking, they're pulling the bags. They have to get in and out a lot. So when we talked to our customer advisory panel, they understood the way the, the noise benefits of not having a door. But they said, I'm not crawling over that center pedestal that many times. It just isn't effective and convenient for me. So if you can come up with some design bell helicopter, we'll take a look at it. 
that could remove those doors. So we went back to our wooden mock-up that we built. Our engineer sat down, put pencil to paper, and came up with this J-Track crew seat design, uh, which basically does what you said. It translates aft, and then it rotates inboard, so that pilot, those two seats converge at the back of the pedestal without hitting the first row of passengers' legs, and they're facing that same first row door. Uh, but the other piece of this was, if I'm a, you know, I was thinking about a pilot getting in and out. The last thing he wants to do is every time I get in and out of this aircraft, I'm translating that seat is to have to reposition it, right? So one of the requirements was we had to put a mechanical memory in there. So no matter how you had that seat adjusted for and aft, up and down, I'm going to translate aft. I'm going to get out. I'm going to get back in. I'm going to go back forward and it goes right back where I had it. So we actually built a prototype of that. We put it in the mock-up and we brought in our pilots from our customer advisory panel, every one of them went in there, they tried it out, did everything they could to it. Everyone came out independently without talking to anybody else, filled out a piece of paper, and every pilot unanimously said, this is the best solution for this aircraft. This gives us a good compromise of design. And really the best design is the best compromise. And it's a perfect example of you're looking at weight, you're looking at cost, you're looking at ease of use. Uh, what is that best solution that meets all of those most effectively but it took that conversation. It took the pilots to come and validate because we would have put doors in there. We would have done whatever they told us. We completely trust our customers to tell us exactly what we need. They said this is the right solution. We have a J-Track crew seat because of that. Okay. And in terms of crash or energy absorption then, you've got the like a tricycle undercarriage. But then did the seats, you know, I guess the passenger seats would probably have a stroke room underneath them. Did the pilot streets then stroke as well? Yes, all the seats are attenuating or crash attenuating. We have designed this for, you know, crash worthiness and, you know, basically from the ground up. The entire uh, contour of this aircraft is made out of composite. We have uh, some very big aluminum machined uh, lift frames in the aircraft. It's a very robust system. It is designed, um, you know, all crash worthy seating systems, composite aluminum construction. You know, right now we're actually building our fuel system drop test fixture and we're going to, we're going to drop you know, an aircraft with fuel cells in it full onto a hard surface. And uh, we have, you know, you can do all this analytically now, but you still have to do it for certification. Uh, the aircraft is an extremely robust. And one thing Bell does very well, and I think it goes back to the military heritage, is we build a very robust product. And safety is paramount to all that design. So I'm fully confident we're going to we're gonna meet or exceed all of our certification requirements. Um, it's just anybody who's flown a Bell helicopter very long understands it. You know, we do design these aircraft to provide maximum durability, maximum safety and reliability. And we've also designed the, the inside from an egress perspective. We've exceeded all of our exits exceed what the, uh, you know, the exit requirements are in terms of size and location and quantity. So a lot of focus on crash worthiness, a lot of focus on effective egress, actually a lot of focus on passenger comfort and safety. So. Our basic oil and gas aircraft has 20-inch seats. Uh, you don't normally see that in oil and gas aircraft because space, personal comfort, a comfortable passenger that has big viewing out windows, very intuitive how to get in and out of the aircraft laterally, he's going to be more comfortable. He's going to be safer because he is more comfortable. He's more relaxed. It goes all the way through the, the personal experience, all the way through that primary structure from a crash worthiness perspective. We really looked at, you know, it's interesting. One of our customers on our advisory panel said, Situational awareness in the cabin is just as important as the cockpit. Those passengers need to know where they are relative to space, how to get in and out, have their own little personal space. They're not crowded in there. They can get in and out very easily. That's going to make them safer. 
the aircraft was designed from that safety perspective for crash awareness all the way from the primary structure all the way through to the seat and the egress for those people. So we have this brand new helicopter. You said earlier there is uh, 10,000 new parts in the design and there's also new systems for the pilots to, to get their heads around. And not only for the pilots, you know, we've got maintainers and the ground support staff to, to get used to it. So what, what is going to be the process to get everyone that's involved trained up and ready to operate the 525? Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about training. And, and training is very important because, like I said earlier, it's not just about a new product. It's a next level support. It's the next level of training. So just I'm going to touch one piece on support, and then I'll talk training. So uh, with this aircraft, we're actually offering a, uh, you know, there's, I can, I can see people hesitating. Wow, there's all this new technology. Sounds really cool. But you know what? If I'm going out, and you can equate it to, you know, most people don't go out and buy an aircraft like this personally, but you can equate it to a vehicle. If I'm buying a vehicle with all that new latest safety technology, comfort technology, reliability, ergonomics, I'm buying it because all that stuff is new. It's important to me, but you know, it's got to work, right? It's no good if it doesn't work. So I'm just assuming the reliability is going to be there. So with any new clean sheet aircraft, 10,000 brand new parts, there's always a concern. Well, is this aircraft going to be reliable? How mature is it? You know, obviously we go through every piece of testing we can, but one of the things we're offering on this program, just to get our customers to understand how confident we are in design, we've had a systems integration lab running for two years testing out the entire, I call it aircraft zero, that replicates every system on the aircraft. We're throwing faults in the system 24 hours a day to see what the aircraft does, how does it respond, what's the pilot see. We have matured this product much more than we've ever done in any other product. We are standing behind it to the point that we have a customer advantage plan for this aircraft that says from tip to tail, you can pay an hourly rate and everything's covered from a maintenance perspective. So it takes out all that concern about is there initial upfront maintenance cost because it's a new aircraft? It also, you know, it levels out the expenses for aircraft ownership. So from a business perspective, I know how much it's going to cost me every flight hour very easily to put that into your business analysis. So there's a piece there on the maintenance side that has a lot of peace of mind and really shows that Bell is standing 100% behind their aircraft. And the aircraft we're flying in flight tests are proving to us that the capability, the reliability that, that we designed is there. So going into the training side, so the one thing that we're doing, this is a Part 29 aircraft, we have to go through an operational evaluation with the CERT authorities. So we're going to have a simulator ready by the end of 2016, a full-flight simulator. And we're going to go through with the training curriculum and with the simulator to validate through the CERT process that it fully represents the real flying aircraft. So we'll have that full-flying simulator available for our customers well before we start delivering product. And then our plan is, as we look at regions around the world, is to have full-flight simulators, either ours or through a third party, available in those regions because we want full-flight simulators also for um, recurrent training because it's really, you know, that is kind of where the industry is going. So we're planning on that. So having full-flight uh, simulators, having FTDs to do procedures training, uh, we're really looking at a lot of, there's so much new technology in this aircraft, we're adding different maintenance courses that we typically wouldn't have in the past. We're going to have a course on IVHM, what's the level of vehicle health monitoring, the RFID system. We're actually providing, this is, I said earlier, the pilot's not really flying the aircraft, he's a systems manager, he's telling the computer what he wants it to do and it flies it for him. So it's important, just like on Part 121 fixed-wing aircraft, that we have an FCOM for the pilot. So we're going to have an FCOM for the pilot's. Uh, so they can really understand the system. They can understand how the helicopter thinks because they need to know that. They need to understand that it's going to think different than what they're flying today, but for a good reason. And once they understand it, it'll make sense. So having an FCOM as safety, as understanding, adding 
IVHM, RFID, uh, obviously the engine and all our other standard uh, major component training will be there from the maintenance side. Really go on that next level of what adds capability to the customer, to the pilot, uh, to you know get the most use and capability out of the aircraft. Something else that we're doing um, this came out of our conversation with our customers is, you know, you look typically at a person buying a helicopter or an aircraft, and basically there's a day called the the, the uh, delivery where they get the aircraft and everybody shakes hands. You give me money, I give you the aircraft, hope things work out for you. Obviously, there's a support system there. But from an operator's perspective, there's so many other things that have to happen. You know, I spend a lot of time in the field, and I see operators taking a new helicopter from anybody, doesn't matter who, they have to load all the serialized data into their Ramco or their maintenance system. They have to do all these things to marinize the aircraft. They have to make sure they got all the ground support equipment, the spares, all the trainings in place. They have to go do route proving. There's a whole list. They have to have briefing cards. They have to have marketing material for end customers. So many things they have to do to be successful. Getting the aircraft is just the first step. So all of those things, or almost all of those things, can be done before they ever get a helicopter. So why can't we work with them two months, six months, a year before they ever get it and make a transition of capability to the customer? So when they get the aircraft, it's the last thing they get, not the first thing they get. So get all that serialized data loaded. Make sure they have all the right spares based on their maintenance capability, the right training based on their capability. Really sitting down with them to understand what do you have? We know what you need and helping them build a plan about, you know, filling the gap. So when they get that aircraft, we're trying to minimize the time between receiving the aircraft and using the aircraft. So from a marinization perspective, we looked at what customers have done, and some of them spent three months marinizing. We went out there to understand what they do, not because we want to do what they do, but we want to understand why they're doing it, what's the intent of it, because we can marinize an aircraft a whole lot better at the detail part level before it's ever put together. So we have marinized this aircraft. We have everything below the floor. You'll see white enamel, beautiful uh, face, surface ceiling, drain paths, even up on the roof deck. Our customers said, please enamel the inside of the cow so we can see if there's a hydraulic or a fuel leak. We have a lot of uh, uh, different coatings, um, new technology coatings even, all over the aircraft and the rotor system, the drive system, the structure, to make this aircraft as robust as possible from an environmental perspective. And I like to use the word corrosion averse. We're not preventing corrosion, we're just preventing it from starting in many of these things. Using composite where things corrode poorly, they just can't handle it it's not going to corrode. So there's a lot of effort there in terms of that transition of this aircraft to our customers. So when they get that aircraft, uh, they know what it is. It's a known entity and they know how to use it every day. So when we first started talking this with our customer advisory panel, somebody said, you know, everybody's talked about doing this. Nobody's ever done it. Um, the next time we came back, we actually had a book called a pre-delivery manual that had all the questions that we would sit down with them and basically starts with an empty book of questions, ends up with a book of answers and a plan they said you are the first customer to act, or company to actually put this in writing and have committed to help us transition and be successful and work with us before we get that aircraft so when we get it, we are truly successful. Because at the end of the day, this, this whole endeavor is measured around customer success. If that customer is safe, goes home every day, can use that aircraft to do his job, to make money or whatever he does with it, then we're successful as a company only because that customer is successful We've taken that all the way through the support side also. So there's a lot on the training side, on the support side, because if we haven't changed the whole paradigm from the beginning to the end, we've missed an opportunity. And uh, we've made sure that with our customers, we've touched every aspect of, of aircraft ownership. Wow. You guys have been busy <laughs> the last couple of years then. Yeah. 
And it's very much, and I guess it's, you know, as things mature as well, it's not just delivering a, an airframe anymore. It's the, the whole system that sort of goes along with that. You know, as you said, even down to passenger cards and making sure they got the, the right, you know, ground handling equipment in the hangar there ready to go. Uh, in terms of the next couple of months, I guess, then what sort of milestones uh, can we see, you know, expecting to come up? Obviously, you'll be at HIA Heli Expo pretty much as this episode goes to air. So that's great. But what's the next couple of months or, or this year? hold for the 525 program? I think, uh, you know, something we've always said on this program, and it's still true, is, uh, you know, we've been very conscious about, you know, I like to use the term under-promise and over-deliver. Every time we come out and tell you something about the aircraft, it's just getting better and better. We're going to be conservative until we prove to ourselves that we can be better. I never want to tell a customer something that I'm not 100% sure is true. Uh, We're going to come out with better and better news, and it kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation about speed, about stability of the system, about how the aircraft's performing. Uh, from a flight test perspective, we have five aircraft in the program when we're at full peak. So right now we have aircraft one and two doing a lot of the development testing. We've flown all corners of the envelope, all altitudes, all speeds, all uh, you know CG configurations, light, heavy, light aft, you know, heavy forward, heavy aft, uh, really trying to fly everything risk reduction. The aircraft's doing so well, we're ready to go into certification testing. We've already got some certification points on the program. There's one thing, you know, the, the analytics on, on that are available today are incredible. The, uh, you know, we've taken certain uh, flight test scenarios and we've done those previously in our predictive models, and it's just uncanny how close they were to the actual uh, what we saw in the aircraft. There's so many variables in something like that. It's amazing how close they got. So we're ready to go into certification testing. But one of the things you have to do truly in flight tests is you have to see how the aircraft performs, how it handles, what the drag effects are. And typically on every helicopter program, you kind of play with the surfaces a little bit. You know, we're playing with different beanie sizes, a little bit different tweaks on the cowl shape to see if we can get a little less drag, a little more optimal performance. Everything is flying beautifully, but, you know, this is our chance to get it even a little bit better. So kind of the engineer's dream to tinker a little bit. But we're very close to finalizing that to our production configuration. Uh, and once we do that, then we're going into with uh, fully uh, cert testing. So FAs on board. Two aircraft flying today. We'll have our third aircraft flying here in a matter of two or three weeks. It actually comes out of paint on Monday. Uh, and then aircraft, it'll actually be our, aircraft three will be our load level survey aircraft. It's very heavily instrumented. That aircraft probably will go up to Canada to our Mirabelle facility to do that. And then later this year, we have air, our fourth and fifth flight test aircraft, which will have all these kits that I talked about that we can certify. So one will be really look like an oil and gas aircraft. The other one really look like a search and rescue aircraft and get all those kits certified also. So a lot of the cert testing getting very soon to start and then getting into those kits certifying and really get through, uh, you know, really in terms of the test points we're flying per flight hour, we're really ahead of our plan. It's not, you know, everybody likes to measure uh, progress on a flight test program by flight hours, but that's really a guess in efficiency. And we are, the aircraft has been so stable and mature we're just getting through these test points with a lot less flying than we need to. The aircraft is available every day. The aircraft's flying well. We're going out. We're flying the test cards. We're coming home. We're doing it again the next day. Uh, it's actually going extremely well because the aircraft, honestly, is is very mature, very stable. I'm excited to get it out in the market. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Sounds fantastic. Is there anything for the sort of you know the aircrew audience, I guess, that would listen to the show that we that we haven't covered that you want to, I guess, fit in the end or, or stress? I think I covered it all. You know, it's it's always fun to, uh, you know, it'd be nice to have a, a pilot here talking about it, but the pilots just love to fly the aircraft. It is, 
you know, I talked to the pilot today that, that flew a speed that we hadn't flown before. And I said, you know, what a feeling to go home and say you did that today. And, you know, just had a big smile on his face that, uh, you know, they are flying that next generation that, that is going to be out there that has all this knowledge of pilots and maintenance technicians and everything that we've learned in the industry, what's worked well, what hasn't worked well, putting all into this aircraft. And now seeing that all come together, you know, it, it probably sounds a little, uh, you know, quaint, but, you know, I think of all the people that have provided and collaborated with their ideas, their experience, their learning in life, whether I'm a, a supplier, I'm a designer on the team, or I'm a customer, and that all culminates together to this product that's flying. It's like those 10,000 parts that all come together with a single purpose. For that pilot today, flying in that aircraft with that single purpose and what he was able to do today that he's probably never done in his life, that's that's a very personal thing. And I think this product is very personal to a whole lot of people that have been involved with it. So it's very exciting for all of us. And I just can't wait to get out so other people can make it personal too. Fantastic. Well, look, Larry, thank you very much. It's a, you know, a great insight into the aircraft and, and the program. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see more of them out and, and people can get up close and, and have a look at them. So thanks very much for your time today. All right. Thanks for uh, the conversation. I uh, enjoyed sharing the, the message and hopefully people can get the get to the uh, heli expo and see the real aircraft so i'll be there and it'd be great to talk to anybody who can come take a look bell helicopters has a dedicated page up at bell525.com where you can see some more photos of the helicopter thank you to zj james simon paul richard and gordy for submitting questions to ask larry Richard had uh, questions that I got after I'd recorded the interview, but Larry is kind enough to answer them uh, via email. So his first question was, will it be single pilot certified? And if so, VFR and or IFR? So Larry said it will be dual pilot IFR at initial certification. Second question is, what class of medical certificate will be required? The answer there is first or second class, depending on the customer or operator's requirements. And can it be flown through aerobatic maneuvers and brackets inverted? And Larry's come back and said, yes, but we prohibit aerobatic maneuvers in the Rowcraft flight manual. As per normal, the show notes for this episode can be found on the website at rotarywingshow.com. There is a video there of uh, Flight Test Vehicle 1 for the Bell 525, and it's in flight. And it's posted on the page there with some really nice segments of the helicopter in the air and flying. If you had a question that we didn't cover or you want more detail on something that Larry spoke about, Leave a question on the comments section of the show notes and I'll see if I can get an answer for you. Thank you for our sponsors for today's episode, trainmorepilots.com. Last week we shared a Instagram tip. This week it's a LinkedIn one. When you first create your LinkedIn profile, LinkedIn will allocate you a default URL or web address for your personal profile. This is normally your name and then a bunch of alphanumeric characters after it, which doesn't look particularly professional. But there is a way to change this web address to something that looks a little bit better and that you can set up as a custom address. The easiest way to do this is to just Google LinkedIn vanity URL and follow one of the many guides that come up in the search results. If you're a flying school or an aviation company and want additional online marketing support, then check out trainmorepilots.com. Speaking of LinkedIn, please do hit me up for a connection there. It's always interesting to find out where you're listening from and to hear your stories about where you're up to in uh, your career, just search for Mick Cullen and same on Instagram if you are up on that. If you enjoy these episodes and get some value 
from them, then make sure you are subscribed on iTunes and leave an iTunes review if you have a moment, as it does help others to find the show. The helicopter audio in this episode, in keeping with our Bell theme, was the Bell 222. I grew up as a kid watching the Airwolf TV series, and ever since then I've always loved the, the shape of the 222. Wherever you are listening from, it's been great to hang out with you again. I'll catch you in the next episode. Make it a great week. Bye.